I want to look at a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, a psalm that kind of focuses on God and celebrates his goodness, but it's also a psalm of trust. It's a psalm that confesses and expresses confidence in God. And at the close of this day of thanksgiving, I hope this is going to be an encouragement to us. And I hope it's going to remind us and it's going to re-emphasize that, that we have a great God, that we have a big God, a God who is worthy of our thanksgiving, who's worthy of our praise, who's worthy of our worship, a God who we can trust. And so please turn with me to Psalm 16. We've never really looked at the psalm before here, uh, but Psalm 16 is page 549. And as we always do here at Windsor, let's stand, not just time for the public reading of God's word, but when it comes to the Psalms, the kind of public praying of God's word. So let's stand together as we read it. Those of you who have a copy of God's word in front of you will, will see that this is actually headed, I think in the Pew Bibles, it's headed a, a miktam. Does anyone know what a, it says, I think it says in the Pew Bibles, doesn't it, a miktam of David? Does anyone know what that is? Has anybody ever come up, you know, thought that one through? Well, Actually, few people do know what it really means, but here are a couple of suggestions as to what a miktam is. It's, it's a golden poem, or it's a mystery poem. But either way, what we're about to read, what we're about to pray is precious. And what it also does, it kind of reveals that David discovered the secret of joy in not just life, but also in, in death. So here we go. Let's read it together. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their name on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Grab a seat. How do you view God? How do you view God? Let me show you a quote we, we certainly have used before from, from Tozer, A.W. Tozer. He said this, that the most significant fact about any man or woman is not what they at a given time might say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceives God to be like. The most important thing about us is what we conceive God to be like. So how do you view God this evening? How do the people around us, in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our world, conceive God to be like? What do they conceive him to be like? As a nice idea, if you're into that? As an irrelevance, if he's there at all? Or maybe just a silent assumption, yes, he's there, but there's no need to pay much attention to him. 
And I've no doubt there are kind of numerous thoughts and different perspectives and opinions out there as how people view God. But what about us? How do we see God this evening? Well, in Psalm 16, we encounter someone and we, we discover from it that it's David who's got a high view of God. A really high view of God, an appreciation and an understanding of God that inspires and motivates, that gives him or leaves him with a profound sense of well-being, despite external circumstances, despite difficulties and the very real challenges of life. We're not entirely sure what is the kind of background or the backdrop to this particular psalm, but in all likelihood it was written in the midst of crisis. As David reflects on God and as he considers his response to him, he writes, even though he's gone through tough times, he writes this gem of a poem, this gem of a prayer that in the space of 11 verses uncovers and declares and alludes to a number of realities about God for which David is so thankful, so thankful, and which instills in him this increasing sense of trust and confidence in his God moving forward. And my hope this evening during our reflection on this psalm is to kind of deepen our knowledge of God, broaden our awareness of God. And if you go out of here tonight with just a higher view of God in a sense, then, then that's all that is going to matter out of, out of this evening. In Psalm 16, we find God described as or referred to explicitly or implicitly in at least nine different ways. And I'm going to pray and I am praying that each of them, whether individually or just corporately all together, that they will stimulate further praise, further thankfulness in us as we go from here. So let's name the nine. Okay, you ready? Here we go. David begins with a recognition that, that God is his protector. And I reckon his first phrase resonates with lots of us. Just that phrase where he says, keep me safe, O God. Protect me, O God preserve me. And I, I don't know about you, but this, this world that we live in doesn't seem or feel like a particularly safe place for far too many people. Increasing knife crime, raising sea levels, displaced people groups trekking miles, war-torn countries, communities, crushing poverty, nuclear threat, terrorist threat, cyberbullying, online trolls, health scares, on and on we could go. And so it seems for so many people, this doesn't feel like a safe place, this world. David didn't always feel safe. We know that. He spent a lot of his life literally running and hiding, fearing for his very life. And therefore, for protection, where does David turn? He turns to God. He looks to God. He cries out to God, God, keep me safe. And for many of us here tonight, that, that opening cry is one we can all echo. Please, God, keep me safe. Keep my family safe. Keep my loved ones safe because you are our protector, God. And as David goes on, he, he gives us the second insight that God is his refuge. For in you, David says, I take refuge. And, and we all know that the Psalms are peppered with this idea that God is not just a refuge, not just our refuge, but he is my refuge. Let me read some of these. You all know these. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 62, trust in God at all times, for he is our refuge. Psalm 91 to God is my 
refuge and my fortress. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that God is my refuge? What does that mean to you on a day-to-day basis? What did it mean to David? Let, Let me give you one definition that hopefully will be helpful. As our refuge, God is our only impregnable, accessible, delightful place of retreat. You know, in the midst of an unsafe world, and as many people struggle with uncertain circumstances and very real difficulties, the one place we can go to find sanctuary is God. It's God. That's where we can go to, to retreat. Yeah, we need other people, of course we do. We need one another, but ultimately our refuge is found in God. We actually know from reading David's story that most of the time that he was on the run, most of the time that David was hiding, he was accompanied by other people. He didn't appear, according to 1 Samuel 7 and his way as you read through the story, he didn't appear to spend very much time on his own. But despite human help and human company, David knew that his fundamental source of refuge, of security, and of safety His fundamental source was God. And so he says, in you, God, I take refuge. Where do we turn? Where do we go to seek shelter from the stuff that life throws at us? David looks to God, my protector, my refuge. Thirdly, David affirms who is in control. Look at verse two. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. If if you use a New Living Translation, you will see that it says, I say to the Lord, you are my master. And, And David states here his submission to God. He declares, God, you are first in my life. You have authority in my life. You have control in my life. This is this is a place, this is a position David has reached of humble surrender. And in our individual lives and the corporate life of this church. This is a place that we need to occupy fully. That place, that position of humble surrender where we willingly submit to God as Lord, as master of our lives. We live God-centered lives as opposed to self-centered lives. Where we live God-focused lives as opposed to self-obsessed lives. And so David says, I say to the Lord, you're my master, you're my protector. Keep me safe, O God. You're my refuge, for in you I take refuge. I seek shelter, I seek sanctuary. But also you are my master. I submit to you. And in the second half of verse two, David acknowledges that God is his provider. Apart from you, God, I have no good thing. What an incredible place to get to. Where you say, God, you know, apart from you, I have nothing good. The Apostle James echoed this very same sentiment in his New Testament epistle. Every good and perfect gift, says James, is from above. Every good and perfect gift I have is from above. And although we do live in an unsafe world, an uncertain world, we do have so much to be thankful for. The Bible promotes gratitude, and we we recently looked at that as a spiritual discipline, as an unforced rhythm. And although it can be hard at times, to actually get to this place where we say, do you know something? And I know Alison used this phrase, God is good. Sometimes the things that come into our lives are not good. They don't feel good. They don't seem good. 
And those are the result of living in a kind of fallen, broken, imperfect world that chose and chooses to live independently of God. But you know, one day, God is going to recreate. God is going to renew this world, a new heaven, a new earth that will only be crammed with good. But until then, the challenge we face is to recognize the goodness of God in each of our lives in midst of the mess. Because apart from you, God, I have no good thing. You are my provider. Everything I have, every good and perfect gift is from heaven above. In verse 3, David seems to kind of shift the focus a little bit and, and he, he changes tack and he gives thanks to God still, but he gives thanks to God for the people around him. Again, if you have a New Living Translation, I love the way it captures this verse. It says, the godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? For David, his heroes were those around him who were living for God. And he says, you know, I take pleasure in godly people. I delight in them. People mattered to David. And this is a great verse and a great encouragement to us to, to, to give thanks for one another. At our corporate prayer time in the cabin that Gordon led, we were given thanks to God for one another. We should value one another. We should appreciate one another. Realize that we're not in this on our own. We're in this together. And so David says, you know, my true heroes... The people I take delight in, the people I take pleasure in are those around me who are living for God. Give thanks today, not just to God, but give thanks to God, but for one another. In verse 4 then, David issues a warning to anyone who chases after other gods, saying, listen, if you chase after other gods and you don't focus on the one true God, you're, you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. But in verses 5 and 6, he's back to confirming God as his provider. And he says this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And again, this is the language of gratitude. And some people think that the portion and the cup that David is referring to here is his daily provisions, his daily bread. The boundary lines may refer to land and territory. There are a number of different interpretations around those phrases, but the one thing is clear. David is content with his lot. Now, this is hard. David is content with his portion in life, and that's a challenge, to accept our lot in life and not to want a different one, not to be jealous of others whose portion in life appears to be better than ours. It, it's not easy to look around and be content. And yet David here seems to have found the secret. And it's a similar secret to Paul's as he sits in a prison in Rome. He pens these words, I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances, whatever my lot Whatever my portion in life, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And he, here's what Paul says. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether I'm well fed, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. And the question I often ask myself is, 
Can I, can I honestly echo those words? That I have learned to be content whatever my circumstances. Or is this a level of contentment that's becoming so elusive in our society? David could say to God, God, thank you for my lot. Thank you for my portion in life. But there's a deeper truth contained in these verses because David's joy and his contentment was not primarily in God's gifts, but in God himself. And that's why in certain translations, and maybe the one you have in front of me, it says, you are my portion, God. You are my cup. You alone are my inheritance. And so the joys and benefits of life lived in relationship with God inspired him. What God has provided, David appreciates. But more than what God has provided, David appreciates God says, God, you are my portion. You are my cup. You are my inheritance. You are my provider. Fifthly, counselor. I will praise the Lord, says David, who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. How does God counsel us? How does God counsel us? Well, primarily it's via his word. Which is, we're thinking about this morning and we quoted this whole idea. God's word counsels us. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. God's word is given to us to guide us and to inform us and to shape us and to influence us. And even at night, as God counsels us, our heart instructs us. It's an incredible thought. That whenever we absorb the counsel of God, whenever we absorb the word of God, whenever we hide God's word in our hearts as we're taught to do, whenever we feed on it, whenever we meditate on it on a regular basis, then even after we've hit the pillow at night, we've drifted off to sleep, God's word infiltrates our spiritual bloodstream and continues to instruct us. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. It's, it's a beautiful thought. God, you're my counselor, protector, refuge, master, provider, counselor. Sixth description, God is focus. He's my focus. Verse 8, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. Or in another translation, I have set the Lord always before me. David's focus is consistently and always fixed on God. It's so easy to do, lose that, isn't it? So many other things constantly enter our field of vision. Other people, things, again, our circumstances, our problems, our difficulties, our failures, the list is endless. But those are the things that occupy our field of vision. And it's not that we mustn't look at those things. We shouldn't ignore them or deny their existence. But what we need to make sure is that we keep them in proper perspective. I must set God always before me so that he becomes my primary, my main focus, and so that it ensures that I see everything else in light of him. And I know that's easier said than done which is why it needs to be a daily decision. It's why it needs to be an act of choice. It's why David says, I have set. I choose to do this today. I choose to do this this evening. I choose to do this tomorrow morning. I choose to get up tomorrow morning and say, I will keep my eyes always fixed on you, Lord. 
The New Testament picks up this mantra, doesn't it? Whenever it tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God is our focus. The seventh thing, his constant companion, look at verse 9, with God at my right hand. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He's right beside me, says David. And therefore, he says with confidence, I will not be shaken. With God at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So many things can shake us, can shake our faith, can shake our confidence, can shake our trust. But if we remember and know that God is always with us, God is always our constant presence and companion then if nothing else, we can hold tightly onto him. He's right at our right hand. So when the ground beneath us begins to tremble and shake, we can have confidence in knowing, God, you will never leave me. You'll never forsake me. I'm not on this on my own. And look at the result of this awareness and recognition. Verse 9, David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. God, you are right there beside me. And so he opens his mouth and prays, God is his joy. That deep, abiding joy that impacts him to the very core of his being, and that can be our experience, irrespective of our circumstances. We have often said this whole idea, happiness happens, joy abides. Deep down, joy that is only found knowing that God is our constant companion and never leaves us, and never forsakes us. And then we get to the end of this psalm. As we get to the end of this prayer, we discover an interesting development in the psalmist's thinking, because he says this, it's strange. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your faithful or your holy one see decay. You see, David appears, and, and this, is, this is one of the first times this idea appears, but David appears to have some understanding of an afterlife. Life beyond the grave. I mean, David knew he would die, we all will, but he somehow believed that he wouldn't suffer eternal alienation. He wouldn't see decay, which is a metaphor for total isolation and abandonment from God's presence. David clearly believed that even in death, and this was a forming idea that even in death, his relationship with God would continue. How he knew that, we don't really know. But he seemed to have an understanding of it, a concept of it. And therefore, God was his hope. Some of you will know that Psalm 16 is not just a thanksgiving psalm. It's not just a psalm of praise. It's not just a psalm of trust, but it's also a messianic psalm. And the reason for that is that it's quoted at least two times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, and Acts 2. Peter quotes it in Acts 13. Paul quotes it. Both times they are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And on those two occasions, they say that Jesus will not see decay. And because Jesus didn't see decay, because Jesus rose from the dead then we who believe in him can have a sure and confident hope that we will not be abandoned to the grave. 
that we will not see decay. We can know with confidence because of Jesus. Now, David didn't know this exactly, but we can know with confidence that death is not the end. Therefore, we can have hope. God is our hope. We will not experience eternal alienation. The relationship that we enjoy with God will continue. And we know that because of Jesus. But somehow David sensed it. And therefore he had hope that God was his hope. And number nine, the last thing. Life giver. Verse 11, you make known to me, says David, the path of life. That is real life. That is life with God. You've made known this path to me. And I love this whole idea that God has revealed that path of life to us. And that path of life is Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father, no one journeys to God except through me. David sees God as life giver who's made known to him the path of life and we can echo that. So David is thankful to God. He's trusting in God who is his protector, his refuge, his master, his provider, his counselor, his focus, his constant companion, his hope and his life giver. And as we bring this day of thanksgiving to a close. May we recall and may we celebrate these realities. And as we move forward, may we have confidence in a God who is all of these things and so much more. And so earlier I asked, how do you view God? I hope as you take Psalm 16 away with you this, this week, that you might be able to echo David's sentiments. This is our God. Amen.